Well, good morning. Uh, I'm being joined today on another opening with uh, Kevin Broccoli, local actor, director, writer, producer, and librarian. And we're going to chat today around about things going on. Again, this is being recorded still during uh, the coronavirus, and we're in various stages of opening. But uh, anybody out there who's involved in the theater knows that um, that's still not happening. Uh, so anyway, good good morning, Kevin. Hi. Good morning. Um, so again, for, obviously, right off the top, the issue of uh, local theaters and um, that are not open yet uh, are uh, as theater by the sea just they early on canceled their season of course it's a summer season and uh, so they had to uh, they had to make decisions early on to say We're, we can't do it this year um, the other local theaters that we all know um, your theater epic is not open now and we'll talk about what your plans are uh, and uh, GAM Theater is pushed their uh, fall, w uh, winter, spring season starting in January. And I think the boldest move, of course, is by Trinity Repertory, who is going to do Christmas Carol. They're going to open with that. And that is, uh, I, 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 God bless them. But, uh, you know, to, to, they have to start that early, obviously, and probably start rehearsal soon, or audition soon, rehearsal soon. And even if people are allowed, who's going to come? That's a big question, not only just what the state will allow, but who is going to come. It's an expensive production. It's, it's a moneymaker. But so, again, I, I applaud them. I hope that happens. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're hearing from a theater right now that they are making plans, um, I mean, I wish them the best. I really don't see the point of making plans. We haven't been given any indication we just just heard from the governor that performing arts venues are going to start being discussed in terms of what's possible for reopening um but you know when this all started you were seeing people say the fall the fall the fall we'll do stuff in the fall and i immediately my ears went up because i'm i'm listening to the medical professionals and they're saying the fall is going to be worse than the summer so i felt like people were making plans based on uh, sort of what they would really love to see happen. You know, one of my favorite expressions is from President Obama, hope is not a plan. You know, you can hope and hope, hope and hope all you want, but hope is not a plan. Um, and I don't make plans based around hope. I make plans based around a medical expert has said it is safe to do X, Y, and Z. So um, even something like Christmas Carol, which I, I think they are gonna maybe do it a little bit earlier, but not too much earlier, um, you know, that might be possible. Uh, I think most smart people are looking at, you know, January 2021 or, or February 2021 as, as, as sort of more of a safer date. But now you're hearing the medical professionals say, mm, winter's not looking, you know, and you can feel everybody cringe when they start to say that, you know, like, oh, we're looking at winter. The reality is we as a country have not done a good job at containing this thing. We have done a terrible job at stopping the spread. We haven't finished the first wave. So everyone keeps saying there's going to be a second wave. We haven't, we haven't ended wave one. And so um, I think that, you know, every plan that people were making was based on the idea that we would get this under control. And as we continue to kind of fail to get it under control, you see the, the, the starting point for when we can start to 
um, reopen things get further and further and further back. I sympathize with bigger theaters in a sense because, you know, they can't, uh, they can't do what my theater and a lot of smaller theaters operate on small, small, small fiscal budgets. Many of us operate without carrying any debt or salaries or anything like that. Some of us have rent, um, but that's about it. So when all of this started, I was not really panicking because I didn't have any real bills to take care of, you know? Um, and so if they come to me and say, you can't reopen until 2028, um, I'll say, all right, I'll see you in 2028. Now, bigger theaters don't have that option. Equity put out their rules for actor safety. I find those rules to be sensible, but I also find them to be completely prohibitive. I do not understand how a theater can open with those rules. So the smaller theaters, which for a long time were non-equity, and that kind of meant that we were sort of looked at as lesser than the reality is we are now your, you know, Luke, Luke, we're your best hope, Obi-Wan, you know, like we're, we're going to be your first chance at seeing theater when all this is over. Now that also puts a burden on us to act responsibly because we don't have a union com coming down on us, telling us what we can and can't do. So I think the bigger theaters right now are also kind of frustrated because by virtue of being bigger and more established, they also have to operate under a set of rules that I do not have to operate under. And it's very frustrating because if this were a race, it's the equivalent of giving me and theaters my size about an eight month head start once this all gets going again. There was a point uh, where when I was trying to ask for guidance about when I could reopen, I was told, well, you could reopen right now if you want. I mean, do we advise it? No. Uh, would we endorse it? No. Would we stop you and send the police? No. And hearing that was very alarming to me because I can't, I need to say to an audience, I have a green light. I have an endorsement. I have, and what I was hearing was, you're never going to get an endorsement. We're, we're never going to give you an endorsement because we have, because there is not going to be a time where we can guarantee, like you want some sort of universal go ahead and we're never going to give you that. At some point it, it is really going to be about you exercising best judgment, using best practices if you want to, if you, you know, if that's what you want to do and hoping that an audience trusts you. And so that was very alarming. Now, since then, that has changed a little bit where they've said, no, you know, we actually do want to be a little bit more involved with the reopening of theaters, which is great. Um, because I think we desperately need to say that we have complied with and worked with the government and with experts to reopen. But, you know, uh, I think doing, you know, dinner theater in Florida right now is like, why don't you just hire an execution squad to line you up against a wall and like <laughs> just take you down that way? It's, it is the stupidest thing uh, I've ever heard in my life. I can't imagine what those actors are thinking. I can't imagine what. So I'm cool. I mean, where I'm at is I will sit out for as long as I need to sit out. I feel and I really hope that all the other theaters uh, my size feel that same way, provided they are financially able to do that. The reality is we all have to do what everybody else is doing. So what I said to my staff is, if we get to a point where all the other theaters our size are opening, yes, we do have to open. Um, you know, if I'm wildly uncomfortable with it at the time, I can hold out a little bit longer, but it's just like any other business. If, if Pepsi's 
factories open, Coca-Cola's got to be open. So the reason I'm very calm right now and the reason I've been calm is because they essentially froze the competition. You know, they froze everything across the board. So I took it as one big, I mean, I don't like the circumstances, but I, I've never been so relaxed because for the first time in my life, I'm not worried about what the theater down the street is doing, what theater in the next state is doing. We're all frozen. And it's funny to me, you know, I understand that, you know, theaters need to pay their bills, but there's a little part of me that goes, but guys, aren't you so relaxed? Isn't this nice? You know, we don't have to, we don't have to go to rehearsal. We don't have to, this is the first summer. I can't tell you the last summer I had where I wasn't working on a play, going to rehearsals every night. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not dying for the break to be over either. Um, I, I do want theater to come back. Um, I, I do understand though that, there is, an, there is an area before we get a vaccine, but after it is safe to a certain degree, that it is gonna be a gray area. And, um, you know, but I will tell anyone who asks me, you know, I don't feel comfortable, are you doing X, Y, and Z? I will say, I will do everything under the sun they tell me to do. And if you are above a certain age or you have underlying health conditions, I really don't want you here. I don't want you putting yourself in that position. I don't. And what I will tell you is that People as a whole, the general public, does not use good decision making. Every time I hear on the news, you know, well, we, well, what we really need to have happen is people need to use good judgment. I go, you might as well talk about you need pigs to write Hamlet because there is no, they, the general public is terrible at making good decisions and having sound judgment. I am whatever the opposite of a Republican is in the sense, in many ways, but the biggest way is I would regulate everything from the color of the pencils on the table should be and everything. I am a huge regulation person because I have worked with the general public since I was 17. Uh, so you're talking about, you know, almost 19 years. And I can tell you that if you do not limit them and give them boundaries, they will do everything wrong they can possibly do. And what we know about this virus is you don't need 20 people to get it wrong. You need one person to make a bad decision and they can infect a room full of people. So, you know, when, they say, when they say fall's gonna be worse, they don't mean second wave. They know we're still in the first wave. What they mean is that this comfort that everybody takes in, it doesn't affect young people. It doesn't affect, you know, knock on wood, it doesn't affect babies. Well, what it means is the virus gets smarter. And it, it starts to go, okay, well, you know, these hosts, you know, we're running out of hosts, you know, we're in some of these places. So it mutates and it starts to, so this whole idea of, well, I'm able to put this out of my head because it's like, well, yeah, they're not, they're not saying fall is going to be, the reason that polio came back and came back worse is because it mutated and it sort of could affect more and more people. So it's, you know, I was in March when you saw people saying, we're going to cancel this event, but we are going to bring it back in September. I went, where the hell are you getting? And it was funny because the logical thing to do if you really had to do it would be to cancel something in March and bring it back around now around July, at least in Rhode Island, when we've kind of got it. And instead they were bringing it back in like September. And I'm going, well, why are you moving sooner? Well, that's when fall theater season. You have all these people who are still using the old way of doing things and trying to operate and trying to play by the rules pre-COVID. And it's, it's interesting to see people who are not willing to let go of that. You know, I didn't, I tr we tried very hard at Epic. We, we did postpone one show and there is one show that we are still going to bring back when we can but we canceled the entire rest of our season i'm not rescheduling any of that i'm not doing it because it's going to be this constant game of you know musical chairs with your shows so i don't know why these theaters don't just say you know what forget whatever we told you 
Um, once we know what we're going to do, we will plan something new. And maybe three years down the line, we'll revisit, you know, that show we said we were going to do before all this happened. Because otherwise you get in this vicious cycle of canceling, postponing, rescheduling, announcing a new show, canceling that show. I, I said to my staff, if I have to put out one more press release about changing plans, you might j just literally throw me off a bridge. So we just got into this habit of saying, I'm not, you know, I'm not planning anything to a degree where it then needs to be announced if we cancel it. Everything that we have said we are going to do is small enough where if we cancel it, I don't think anyone's going to care and I don't think anyone's going to make need a press release about it. Um, but everything else, we're not planning for it because I cannot write another things have changed once again. I'm speaking with, uh, with Kevin Broccoli, and who is a relaxed producer, uh, artistic director of the Epic Theater. Uh, we want to now turn to one of your other hats and talk about writing. What I'd love to talk about is uh, James Franco and me. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I want to talk about it is, first of all, it's a fascinating story of writing and, and pre, uh, a presentation, how the show is presented. And again, I wanted you to take us from the beginning, if you can, uh, and also talk about you know, the problem uh, with Mr. Franco's attorneys. So tell us about, about a little bit about the play, why you chose him. It seems you could probably choose any buddy that maybe people knew or could have been just totally a stranger. But Yeah, I probably should have. I probably should have chose someone else. So um, he is someone who, when uh, I think still to this day has a really fascinating career and makes really fascinating choices. He ironically, I think for me, is an artist who has made every choice I would have made. Like um, he really enjoys dabbling in both high art and low art. You know, he's in goofy frat boy movies and then he does an adaptation of a William Faulkner novel and then he's in like a thriller and then he he starred on General Hospital, which was my favorite soap opera. So it was this weird thing of I think we all have an artist that we feel like has stolen our dream career were we to have one. And he was always kind of that person for me, even though we look very different, we would be cast in very different roles as an actor, but he pursued things, a lot of stuff that I would also, he wrote a short story collection, I've always wanted to do that. So I always kind of hated him for that. And, um, but I was fascinated by him because I just thought he, he made such like really weird, interesting choices. And um, I was, uh, I just started working on this play where I wanted to, I had never really written anything autobiographical. I had never put myself as a character into a play and I had never written about real people. So I got this idea to kind of write about him. And I, I thought to myself, well, you know, the problem with writing a play about James Franco is that very early on, it was clear he was going to be a really obnoxious character. And so then it became about, well, why would I keep hanging out with this person? You know, I need to, and I went back to, you know, I'm a big Meisner person and I went to, um, which I was exposed to by my friend Julianne, who I love, but um, I went back to that old acting thing of, okay, you're in a room. Why can't you leave the room? How does the other person keep you in the room? And so I thought, well, what situation could we be in where I couldn't leave the room? And I stumbled upon the idea of, well, I guess if I was in a hospital, I guess if my loved one was in a hospital, I guess if I'm stuck there and he just refuses to leave. So I put my father in the hospital on his deathbed and, um, uh, you know, and, and then the whole play became about my relationship with my dad 
and my relationship as an artist and an actor and more time. And it was just one of those really lovely things as a writer. You just kept stumbling into good stuff based on the situation that you picked. And through the course of writing the show, we, we did a workshop of it at um, my friend Kira Hawkridge. Her, her theater company, Out Loud, did a new works uh, night and that was one of the plays presented and it went over really well and then it went in a drawer because it was so weird it was such a weird show that i thought who's going to want to see this you know the the producer and me kicked in and went yeah you know you wrote a good play but nobody's going to want to see it so it went in a drawer and then i went to new york fringe a few years ago with uh, a play called american strippers which when we did it in rhode island was this big 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 uh uh, yes, uh, you liked it. Yeah, uh, it was this big, big, big controversy. I did like it. I'm sorry, I can't yeah. speak. No, no, no. I, I did see it. Uh, it. Yeah, it was marvelous, marvelous. Your yeah. gift for but, for monologues is uh, well, anyway. But oh, yeah. great. But here it was. Here it was kind of looked at as being racy. So we took it to New York Fringe, and lo and behold, they went. This is the most PG thing we've ever seen. You know, for New York Fringe, it was like a Disney movie. And so I would say that I was very proud of what we did at Fringe, but in terms of being Fringe at Fringe, we failed miserably. We were nothing, there was nothing about it that was Fringe. So we're on the train home and me being competitive, I said, I'm coming back here and I'm gonna come back here and I am gonna out Fringe all of these people. And I said, so how do I do that? I said, well, everyone at Fringe had a concept, like a really, out there concept so that the work itself and the text and all that wasn't necessarily groundbreaking, but it was the concept. So I said, you know what would be really cool? I had a show at the time. It was, a, it was, I don't know if you saw it, but it was called Total Strangers. And it was a female take on Strangers on a Train, which is one of my favorite sort of tropes. And, and, and I love the Hitchcock movie and all that. And originally what I had wanted to do was have the actors rehearse separately and meet only on stage and only interact for the first time in front of an audience and, and, and never. And it just became clear that there was no way that was ever going to work. Um, and, but I loved that concept. I thought, what a cool concept because it's kind of like improv, but not because they know what they're going to say, but they don't know what the other person's going to do. So I said, well, that would be kind of a cool fringy concept, but what would I do that with? And I said, oh, I have that really weird James Franco play. I could maybe do the concept with that. So I said, well, we'll try it out in Cranston. We'll see how it goes. And so I put out a call. I said, who wants to play James Franco? You're going to get a script. You're going to memorize the script and you're not going to rehearse it. You're going to show up the night of on stage, perform it with me and then walk away. And I don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what I'm going to do. And we're going to go from there. And by the way, this script was not written for this concept. So I don't know if it's going to work. There's a, there's a nine page monologue in it. You're going to have to perform a nine page monologue undirected, all this stuff. And I got a bunch of, a ton of interest to do it because a lot of actors hate rehearsal. I know you, it's the, the thing to say if you're an actor is I love rehearsal, I love rehearsing. A lot of actors just want to do it in front of the audience. They're just hams and they don't want to, you know. I'm one of those people. I, I don't particularly like rehearsing. I like performing. So I got a lot of interest. We did it. Again, I thought no one's going to come to this. It's a weird, it's niche, it's all this stuff. And it was one of our most successful things right out the gate that we ever done. We got great reviews, which I didn't think we were going to get because I thought it was so weird and ridiculous. And um, so it was a really big hit in Rhode Island. We then were planning to take it to Fringe and Fringe folded. I always get to the parties, the party's ending. So there was no Fringe. Um, they have since tried to bring it back and that's not gone really well. But so uh, my friend David, who's a uh, producer in New York, um, he said, well, we can get you this little theater here. You can do it here. 
it's it's a tiny theater, you know, it's not that many seats, but, and I said, I just want to do it in New York. I said I was going to do it in New York, I want to do it in New York. So we announced that we're doing the show in New York. Now at this point, I had desperately, because I'm a PR uh, junkie, I had gotten that script and that play, because I thought all I need for this to blow up in Rhode Island is for him to tweet about it. I don't need him to show up. I don't need him to, I, le- I need him to just literally in some minor way acknowledge that this exists and people in Rhode Island who are impressed when you grow up pumpkin that looks like Nixon will lose their minds. You know, I knew that. I knew that the bar for press in Rhode Island was low enough that if I could just get him to acknowledge it. So I managed to get it to his agent. I got it to his girlfriend. I got it to, I mean, I, I, I think I got it to everybody who knows him. I never actually knew if I got it to him. But, but I also never heard from him. And so there was a little part when we were doing it in Rhode Island where I thought, I wonder if he did you know, have an issue with this. But then I didn't hear from him. And I, I, I felt like, well, I did my due diligence. I got it to all of these people and, and nobody said anything. Okay, whatever. So we're going to do it in New York. We're going to do it three times in this tiny space. Maybe 12 people would have seen it. I'm on my way to a rehearsal, and we've already done it in Rhode Island. We've done it literally at that point, I think 30 or 40 times. It was the show we did over and over because it was an easy show to produce. There's two folding chairs, it's super easy. Um, you know, no rehearsals. So I'm on my way to rehearsal and I get a phone call from David and he says, we got an email, we got a cease and desist from James Franco. And in that moment, again, this is where my producer hat kicks in. The writer and the actor in me might've been like, aw, the producer was like, this is the most amazing thing that could have ever happened to me. This is, this is, this is a gift. Like he couldn't have given me, this is better than if he sent me a check for $10,000. I had directed the show. So we, we rehearsed, I went home, I wrote up a press release immediately with all the buzzwords, James Franco cancels production, blah, 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 sent it out, immediately got the journal called me, the Providence journal. Um, and they're not easy to get. Let me tell you, they're one of the harder ones. And then the next day I went to California I got off the plane in California and I had a phone call from the New York Times. I had a phone call from Rolling Stone. I had a phone call from the Wall Street Journal. And I was supposed to be on vacation and I looked at my poor boyfriend and I went, I don't know what vacation is about to look like, but it might not be the vacation that you... So um, he, his people had sent a cease and desist. Now, I also believed that it was all a big mistake. I thought that some law intern's job at at some talent agency was supposed to Google their clients and if they saw the name pop up, send the cease and desist. So I thought that, you know, oh, this is great because what's going to happen is he's going to see the bad publicity. He's going to go, oh my God, I don't want that bad publicity. He's going to say, no, I love the show. I want him to do the show maybe. And then I thought we might actually get him to show up. I really thought that because I thought he's now going to have to repair the damage that he's done. He might actually agree to come see the show or whatever. So I was thinking like Cinderella fairy tale. Um, but I did have a lawyer offer to, uh, you know, represent me for all of this. And when I started talking that way, the lawyer said, I need to straighten you out about something right now. Uh, he is absolutely not going to do any of those things. This was not a mistake. Um, he does not want the show to happen. And the only happy ending is you being allowed to do this show again. And what he's counting on is that because there's a 24 hour news cycle, that if he just doesn't say anything, this will become old news. The cease and desist letter will still be in place and you will be blocked from ever performing that show again. And so we then entered this legal back and forth. And it was really tough because 
I had people online still thinking what I was thinking, which is, oh, he must not know about it. He must not know. If he knew, if he knew, if he knew, he would come and perform it with you and you take it to Broadway and win it. And I finally had to snap back at some people and say, guys, this is not a fairy tale. This is, this is not, um, uh, ironically, I think he's presented very sympathetically in the show. I actually grew to like him as a character, whereas I had started writing it not liking him. And then I was sort of snapped back to the reality of, oh, he's actually not very nice, you know? Um, and uh, we fought and fought and fought. Uh, we went back and forth. We went through every... One day, I think I've done this before, but one day I'm going to have to read the email that I got about changes that they wanted me to make to the script so that it would be acceptable to him. And... Um, you know, I was willing to make whatever changes they wanted because at that point I thought, I have no urge to ever perform this play again that makes you look like a cool, funny character. Like, you know, I, I don't care if I ever do it again. I'm only pushing to do it because you are trying to stop me from doing it. So once I get the permission, I might never do it again. Um, so we fought and fought and fought and fought and fought. We finally got permission. Gonna take it to New York. And the week before we go to take it to New York, allegations surface that he is a predator, which I had kind of, it had kind of already been out there that that was a possibility, but this was, but it wasn't really amplified that much. And, and in my mind, I'm writing this show and he's an asshole and I know he's an asshole. So, you know, and then he ended up looking, but he ends up looking very likable in the play. So we take the show to New York and I go, I don't even know if I want to do the show now because, you know, and, and it was a great lesson to me that you cannot write a play about anybody where you devote that much energy to them and not have them come out looking good. It's impossible. You know, we talk about anti-heroes. We talk about if you put someone on stage as a character for that amount of time and that much focus, they come away looking good. It, I firmly believe that there is no way to, you know, unless you're having to murder whole villages, they're going to come away looking good. So we did the show and we did the week in New York it was a very strange week. Um, and then since, and then after, and then I wrote, I love the concept so much that I wrote another play with the same concept, but not the characters. And this is actually the first time I've talked about it because every so often someone will ask me to talk about it. And I've said since we did it in New York, when we finished it in New York, I said, I'm never doing this play again. I'm never talking about this play again. I don't, I don't particularly want to act in it ever again. Um, and it's not even because it's a bad memory, but it, you know, I never wanted to be that guy who did one, did something and it got a lot of attention and he built it for the next 27 years. So even, um, you know, there, there, there is a college in the area that is interested in doing it next uh, year. And they, you know, asked me about it. And I said, you have my blessing. Go right ahead. Have fun. I want nothing to do with it. You know, I'm not, uh, I'll, I'll talk to the kids. I'll come in. I'll say hi. I'll whatever. But I'm also a character in the play. And there's a, a lot of very personal stuff. And it was not ever that fun for me to perform. One time I got to perform it as Franco. I switched roles with somebody. And that was a blast. He's a fun character to play. But I was not that fun to play. And so, um you know, now I'm just kind of like, I, I, I don't mind talking about it uh, to you, but it's funny because, you know, people tend to do that thing, especially in Rhode Island of like, well, you're the one from that thing. That's what you're going to be forever, you know? And I've done so much weird stuff that it's like, you know, I did Hamlet with all pugs. I did, um, I used to do monologues. I've done an obscene amount of shows with nude people in them. So it's just kind of like, you know, 
it's like there's so much to talk about, you know, like and 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 I'm always really focused on what the next uh, thing is. Now, one of the um, that's that's telling the story brilliantly, by the way, uh, very concise and understandable. But one of the things you sort of missed that if people don't know the show, don't know is that the Franco character that was multiple actors, you know, actor did one performance yeah. and then you had another actor. Tell us the range of people. They all, they all were kind of James oh, yeah. Franco types, right? So we, yeah, I mean, I never, I said from the beginning, you know, I don't care if you look like James Franco, I don't care. So we had a 17 year old boy do it once. We've had women in their 60s. We have had every race, creed, background, um, I don't think we've ever had anyone do it who looks anything like James Franco. Um, and so it's been men, it's been women. We did some nights, you know, because after you, because once it got banned or once we did the cease and desist, just to be a jerk, I presented a night called Blank Blanco and Me, where we did the entire show, but we didn't say his name, which actually was permitted. They told me, you could, if you do the show, but you take his name out, you'll be allowed to do the show. But the problem is it's called James Franco and Me. So now it has to be titled James Franco and Me in Unauthorized Satire. Anytime we have to talk about it now, I have to say that. But um, so I had dueling Francos. I had nights where I had two different Francos. And the thing is, when you watch the show, you get the sense that maybe he's just a figment of my imagination. So you can kind of really play with it in that way and have multiple people or have one person and switch off and, and it works, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to take away from the show at all. And it kind of, but I actually think it was one of the most beautiful experiences I ever had because I, it, it challenged all the things as an actor that I am bad at. I am very much getting ahead. Of, I get ahead of myself. I get in my head. I make a mistake and then I beat myself up. And the show really broke me of all that stuff because you just can't. You can't do it. And Franco was in 2016. I think the election happened and I think our opening night was a week later. And so I was in, as many people were in the worst possible headspace going into a show. And that show was so healing because what would happen is I would be backstage with another actor. I would look at them and I would say, I trust you. I have to trust you. I have to trust you completely. And you have to trust me. And we're only going to have each other. And whatever you do is right. And whatever I do is right. And if one of us messes up, the other one's got to catch the other person. And so it was a silly show and it was an irreverent show, but it also was a wonderful um, experience and a reminder that theater is so healing because I had to be vulnerable. There were people I did that show with who I met at seven o'clock call. So it was, it was a complete trust fall. Now I got really lucky because nobody ever really train wrecked. Um, I remember the 17 year old guy at the time, at the time he was 17, his name is Matt. He gave me a heart attack because as we're about to walk on stage, he goes, you know, I just started looking at the script two days ago. And I went, oh my God. Now we had a device built in, which was if they did forget a line and they were up there and they were flailing, they could yell Franco and somebody would bring the script to them and then we would have to be on script for the scene. So that was like the safety net. But, um, you know, I'm still thinking we don't want to do that too much. And you just, what I forgot is that when you're 17, you can glance at anything peripherally and it'll go in your head and stay there forever. So this kid tells me, and I, I believe him, that he looked at the script two days before the show. He went on stage and when I mean he did it letter, perfect like letter perfect not one word out of place and i went you son of a bitch you little 17 year old son of a bitch you know it was just um because it was letter perfect but it was it was 
a really, I am, I truly feel like I am bonded with every person I did that show with. I feel a real, and they, we have like a little James Franco. It's like a little cult of us. Like they have come, the people who've done it came to see other people do it. They would reach out and give each other advice. They used to run lines with each other. They, so it was this really wonderful community that was formed around this show because the show was such a challenge. Um, we had somebody in the audience watching one night and he pulled me aside after the show. He said, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this play. And it's, a, and it's an adrenaline rush. I mean, I've been doing theater since I was eight years old. I think the last time I had stage fright was the, the every single time we did Franco, I had stage fright. And it's the only time I can remember having stage fright since I was a little kid. Because there is this moment of, is this really going to happen? Are we really going to, is this going to work? I mean, the first performance of it, I looked at the girl I was doing it with and went, is this going to work? And she looked at me like, well, how the hell should I know if it's going to, you wrote it, you produced, you know, but... But I looked at her and I went, are we about to do this? This, this might, this completely, you know, and that's what was exciting about it. We've talked about producing. We've talked about directing. Uh, you've ta we've talked about writing. Um, and what I'd love to do, would you be willing to do either reading or perform some short monologue for us? Yeah. This was written May 9th. Um, I write a new uh, monologue or uh, every week I write one scene and then the rest are monologues on my personal blog every day is it's kind of like a writing workout usually very short pieces this one was written May 9th which might as well have been 12 years ago even though most people would consider this brand new uh, never performed it my dream I have always wanted to play I've never really gotten to play a villain and I've always wanted to play a villain and I've specifically always wanted to play a government agent like a really creepy prisoner kind of government agent and so if anyone and so if anyone wants to cast me I keep writing these pieces and you know but um so this uh piece was i always gravitate towards that so i had the title first and then it ended up being that kind of character which you'll hear so the title is we don't have to tell you where your husband is um and uh, i will dive right in so this is we don't have to tell you where your husband is <clears throat> we don't have to tell you where your husband is let's get that straight Let's make sure we're very much uh, on the same page about that. We do not have to give you any information regarding the whereabouts of your husband. We don't have to even tell you whether or not he's alive. We don't have to tell you anything. And you can make demands, but your demands are something you have been told your whole life you are entitled to make. You are entitled to make demands. That's what you believe, right? Because up until now, when you've done it, it's worked. And it's not going to work anymore. Now. That might come as a shock to you, I expect it will, but what you are about to learn, or you're learning right now, you're learning that everything works until it doesn't. And a responsible person, um, you know, when they have a child, the way your parents had you, should teach that child that they shouldn't expect anything to work forever. All the things that you used to place somewhere, you know, towards the top of the world uh, of how things are supposed to work, those things are no longer accessible to you. Do you understand that? We have taken those things away from you. And what's more, it was always our right to take them. They were not yours. They were something we let you have so you felt better and so you didn't walk through this world crying all the time. Not because we care if you feel bad, but because we hate the sound of crying. And just like we've taken your resources, we have also taken your husband. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I'm saying? We do not have to tell you where he is or why we took him. 
And if it wasn't already obvious, let's just point out that we have no obligation to give him back. He, like you, owns nothing. He, like you, has access to nothing. He, like you, has been allowed to breathe and exist for as long as we felt he should be allowed to do so. That's how it boils down. We will tell you what we're about to tell you because we feel like telling it to you, but we do not have to. Just let's, let's be very clear about that. We don't have to. Now, we can begin our conversation now that we all know how this is going to go. That's the piece. That's the Very nice. So that, again, is on your blog? Uh, yep, that's on the, uh, the kevinbroccoliblog.blogspot.com. I apologize for how long that is, but I've been using it. No, it's great. And back. also, uh, let's, I, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. For those people who don't know you, uh, uh, you um, you're directly related to uh, the, the Bond broccoli. The Bond broccolis, yeah, yeah. I, um, uh, I've never met any of them, but um, I believe, if I'm getting this right, hopefully nobody sues me, please don't, I'm sorry. I believe that Albert, who is the one who was the top dog there, is a cousin of my uh, late grandfather. Um, I will happily, if, it, if it's like that thing where you can claim a percentage if you're related, then someone please tell me, but otherwise, um, or let me play a Bond villain. Either way, I'll accept either payment or Bond villain. But um, yeah, no, that's, uh, we are some way distantly related. I also, I don't know if I mentioned, but yeah, I'm the artistic director of Epic Theater in Cranston. If I don't get that out, my, um, if you want to check us out on Facebook, Epic Theater Company, um, uh, you can find us on there, and uh, we'll, that'll direct you to like a website, epictheaterri.org. And uh, we we've been doing a ton of digital programming, so even though there's not live theater right now, we've we've got a lot of really cool digital stuff happening. I end up being a silver lining about this is that I think before all of this started, theater was losing the relevance battle to Hulu, Netflix, streaming, isolation, people staying at home. And I don't think people, you know, it's funny that people are resisting isolating now because that's what they were doing before. You know, nobody was telling them to do it, but that's what they were doing. And so when all of this started, I was devastated because I thought, well, we've now lost the war. I mean, like I said, they froze theater. So theater to theater, it wasn't so bad. But I go, well, now you're telling everyone to stay home. We were trying to get them to come out. You know, we're, we're never going to come back from this. We're going to lose the war. And the reason I think this ended up being a good thing for theater is ultimately is because it has demonstrated that you cannot replicate this. You can't, we've been doing a lot of digital content, but I always say, we are not pretending that this is as good. There, I don't think anything could have happened that would better demonstrate how important and valuable and healing and wonderful the experience of sitting in a room with a group of people um, even if the play is bad, you know, I've been, I've had great times at really bad plays because you see other people, you see other artists, you bump into people, you meet people you haven't met, you sit next to a woman you didn't know before, you know, and so finding out that that experience would be missed and is missed and that people want it to come back, I think is just ultimately going to put us in a much better place when we are able to come back. Well, to close out, this has been a wonderful uh, time with Kevin Broccoli, Artistic Director of Epic Theater. Why don't we, could, could we close out with a joke? Could you, <laughs> could you tell us, give us your most stupid thing that someone has said to you in the library? I've had a, I've had a person point to the stairs and say, do those go down? Um, 
you know, and uh, it's really hard because I'm a sarcastic person. It's very hard to go, no, those are the upstairs. Um, the down ones are the other side of the building. It's just, uh, yeah. Oh, well, thank you for those light moments, Kevin. And I'm sure you have writing or, or yeah. something to <laughs> get do. Back to, yeah. Get back to that. I really, this has been great. And like I said, I will, um, I'll send a direct link to you uh, and hopefully you'll post it and oh, uh, other people yeah. will post it. And yeah, well, thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Day. Welcome. Again, we'll keep our fingers crossed. I'll keep watching Facebook and, and coming to your, uh, to your theater site. And hopefully we're going to have good news soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Take care now. And before I bid you happy trails, let me ask if you'd be so kind as to follow me on Twitter. Uh, send me your comments uh, if you have any suggestions or if you'd like to volunteer for a future podcast, that'd be wonderful. So you can find me on Twitter at Jim Solonowski. That's J-I-M, last name S-U-L-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. Until next time.